it's so intuitive of you to, 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 to be in that place, but it's so right on. And there are a couple of things I, I usually talk about when it comes to that exploration that you're talking about. When you're really sizing up the other person, it's sometimes it's, and sizing up to, to your point, I don't mean that in a way of how can I manip- manipulate them, take advantage of them. Um, I really want to know how is, what is the best way to communicate with this person? How are they going to interpret or receive the information that I'm delivering? Because that is really what it's all about. Welcome to the Real Estate Law Podcast. Jason Muth here once again with straightforward short-term rentals and pride away stays. We are welcoming back to the podcast, Eric Davy Gislison. Did I get your your last name right, Gislison? You did. You yeah. did. It is. Uh, this is my married name. Davy is okay. my wife's uh, maiden name, and we uh, we joined them together uh, uh, as our last name once we got married. Look at that. Excellent. Our, our daughter has a, has a combined name like that as well. It's just, you know, very, very long and hyphenated, but um, Hey, that's, that's the world we live in and that's what everyone chooses to do these days. So that's right. Um, um, so thank you for coming back to the podcast. Eric, um, Eric is one of, we've had a few return guests in this podcast. We talked to Eric back in July of 2022 and the episode came out shortly thereafter. I just looked it up. Your episode number 68. And right hey. now you're gonna, be, you're gonna be number 154 right now. So you know, oh, I like it. Okay, certainly had a lot of conversation since then. Um, Eric is uh, you're still in New York, right? Yep. Yeah, Eric yep. is still in New York, still in New York City. He is our resident expert on negotiation, um, and not just negotiation, but negotiating with empathy. Uh, that was yeah. the name of the epi- of the episode that we recorded, um, and we liked it so much. If you're a listener to this podcast, a regular listener, you probably noticed that we have been releasing these quick take episodes as well. Which uh, this goes back to my radio days, where I realized that sometimes you put out so much content and so much good content, we'd like to think that things get buried. So yeah. we're resurfacing some of the older content and shorter snippets, along with some additional new commentary. Uh, and Eric, we picked you first. You were the first quick take that we released a couple weeks ago. I'm honored. That's I, I love the quick take. Um, I really enjoyed uh, the last episode that we taped, and I'm I'm thrilled to be here again. So a lot has changed in the past year and a half, two years, not just in the world, <laughs> but in 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 the real estate environment, in yeah. finance, in politics. I mean, we're recording this in 2024 right now. Uh, you have new ventures as well, which you'd love to get into right now. You're the, now the yeah. founder of Archway Partners Coaching. And yep. and one of the things that when um you know when we book this episode you know whenever we book an episode uh, we ask a guest to just complete a couple things like you know what are you working on now, and Eric wrote down asynchronous content for Archway Partners and I honestly had to look up what that meant, um, <laughs> so I'm like oh these these fancy words he's using but I um, I looked it up and I said oh I know what he's he's doing a course he's doing something where he's going to have some self guided learning so um, lots to talk about Eric welcome back to the podcast. And Thank let's you, Jason. find it's out. A pleasure. Let's find out what what's Archway Partners all about. Well, thank you for the for the plug, and thank you to, to both you and Rory for the first time I was on the, on the podcast. One of the things that I get from each time I do a, a guest uh, guest on a podcast or do any sort of appearance is I start to see how um, that results in people who want more help in the specific areas 
in which I teach. And so I actually had people reach out after that podcast to talk about one-on-one coaching. And at that point, I was in the infancy, uh, or Archway Partners was in its infancy, and I was developing the website. Um, And we launched later that year after uh, we had our conversation. And Archway Partners Inc. Coaching is a real estate coaching company. Um, We focus on -on one-on-one coaching as well as small group coaching. So I do small group coaching, which is more of that accountability partner, guided, being there for you, supporting the coachee. And then we also have skills-based coaching, which is more about understanding um, the practical skills of real estate. I've been in the real estate industry for about two decades now. Um, and I've been in the real estate industry as not only an agent, but as a director of sales, a director of development. So I've, I've had various roles within the industry that give me, a, I think, a unique perspective on what agents go through. I'm still currently an agent. I went back into the field after spending some time in management. Um, and so now Archway Partners is, is taking all of that together and really using, the, the way I like to frame it is, it's using value proposition from my negotiation training that I do as a jumping off point or a tangent, a tan- tangential point or a tangent point um, to the coaching. So what is it that you want to do? What is it that you want to achieve? What are you bringing to the table? How can we best help you convey your value to your specific clients and customers and using that as a way to help people elevate their career? So that's what Archway Partners is all about. And then the asynchronous stuff um, is in development right now. I'm working with my younger brother, Travis, um, who is a learning and development expert to create Um, asynchronous or evergreen or or self-paced, as you mentioned, content um, that people can access at any time to really work on their negotiation skills, to really work on that, the skills of buyer psychology and overcoming fear and all of those different things that that agents have have issues with from time to time. You know, Eric, before we dig into that a little more, I should have asked you the most important question, which I meant to ask first, which was last time we talked, I think you won dad of the year, seven out of 10 years running. <laughs> and yes. um, and I, I just want to see how things are going the past couple of years. And if you've been able to add to that title. Yeah. 2022 I got in 2023. Okay. Um, it's still 2024. There've been a couple of mishaps, couple, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll still see what happens this year, but I did, I did end up taking the crown in 2023. Um, as I like to say, and as you know, my my kids and my wife are the only people who vote. So the the hard the hard ones are the ones I don't win. Um, but uh, but I pulled it out in 2023. Good, good. All right. Well, I, ho- I hope you keep lobbying for that award uh, for for years to come. And if you don't get it, you know, maybe some maybe some of that content that you're recording can help you. Um, you know, with that's true uh, with with working with those clients because you know you're fa- you're negotiating with your family all the time. I'm sure all the time. Yeah, exactly. And now I'm teaching my kids. Uh, collaborative negotiation skills, tactics, techniques. And so they get better and better. They're already, kids are already, as we know, um, just inherently good or or naturally good at negotiating. But when they actually know why it's working, they get really dangerous. How do kids get this? I mean, I see my daughter negotiating all the time. I mean, first of all, she barks orders, right? And then- (laughs) And 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 then the negotiation will will kick in when I start to push back a little bit. She doesn't take no as an answer. Like, is this something that they learn from the womb? I don't get it. Well, it's really it's really what we unlearn 
as as younger adults and adults. I mean, that we are inherently curious beings. We want to learn and we do so. We learn and we take in information as a way to inform our decisions. So this is something that we're all born with and this ability to ask questions is something that we all know inherently how to do. What happens is, is that that starts to close off as we get older because we start to worry about the outcomes of the questions that we're asking. We start to assume the outcomes of the questions that we're asking. Um, we, we tell all of these stories to ourselves in our heads and that causes us to just stop asking questions or to ask less questions or to just you know um, go at it a different way because we think that we're being too intrusive or we think that we're going to bother somebody. All of those things, like you said, your your daughter doesn't take no for an answer and and knows exactly how to keep asking over and over and over again. And that's that's part of that's part of everything that that is great about uh, a skilled negotiator is one that really can turn that filter off. Understand that as an adult, we don't want to upset people or offend people to the point that it disadvantages us. But we have to go a lot further to do that if we have trust in a relationship than we think. And we often you know, we're thinking about worst case scenario all the time. Whenever we ask a question of, of a friend or a loved one or a partner or a boss, when these people we've, we've built up years and months, years, decades of trust with them, and there's a far greater uh, threshold or a, the threshold is far larger than we think it is um, to, to really damage that relationship or offend that person. It's a fine line between asking too many questions or asking, you know, questions you probably know the answer to and overthinking it and then not asking questions at all. Again, regardless of yeah. what we do, you mentioned something in there about, you know, playing out a scenario and things that we might have to unlearn uh, from when we were a child. Yeah. Think about it. How often um, is there a situation that we're presented with, whether it's in real estate or business or life, where we kind of overthink what is going to be said back to us if we ask mm -hmm. a series of questions, whereas a child might just ask them, right? They just That's right. into it. Yeah. Yeah, we, we do. We overthink it. We play the entire chess game out in our head. We play out every move that the other person is going to make as if we were the one making it. And, and it gets complicated because if you're really good at chess, now you are, you are playing the game through the lens of your own ability, right? So it may be that you're negotiating with someone who has, does not have the level of skill and sophistication that you think they do because you're seeing their responses through your own lens. And that's really important to get in the other person's shoes and look at the deal or look at the transaction from the other side. But if you assume that the other person without asking questions has the same path, the same knowledge, the same skill and expertise, you're going to, you're going to miss opportunities in that negotiation. And then going back to, the, to what you said about uh, the children just asking and not being worried, you know, that's what I mentioned about outcomes. It's so incredibly important that um, we don't assume outcomes or get tied to the outcome of the question that we're asking. Because once we do that, then we alter the question or we, or we don't ask the question at all. You know, part of when I was a digital sales director prior to becoming an entrepreneur and, and running our own real estate businesses, um, we were pitching local businesses all the time. Like we do four-legged sales calls. I'd go with salespeople and I'd be the manager or director on that call. 
And early on, you know, after exchanging pleasantries and just kind of the early part of a, of a typical sales call where you're really just kind of getting to know each other as humans, um, I would always try to figure out, because I was there as the digital guy, right? You mm -hmm. know, trying to add on digital media. I was always trying to figure out the level of understanding that the person I to whom I was speaking understood digital media, right? Yeah. Because if I ran in there and started talking over their head about things and throwing terms around, they might either shut down or think I'm just like, you know, some know-it-all and I can't unrelatable. Whereas yeah. if I if I went in with really dumbed down terms and they were super sophisticated, they might say this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, so early on in that in that conversation, and you know, I'd love to get your take on this kind of strategy. I'm there asking questions, but part of the questions are, are formulating an opinion in my head as to how sophisticated this person is, not so I could dupe them, but so I can yeah. have a conversation that they understand. How 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 is that in a conversation in a business transaction? It's that I mean, it's so intuitive of you to to. to to be in that place, but it's so right on. And there are a couple of things I, I usually talk about when it comes to that exploration that you're talking about. When you're really sizing up the other person, it's sometimes it's, and sizing up to, to your point, I don't mean that in a way of how can I manip manipulate them, take advantage of them. Um, I really want to know how is, what is the best way to communicate with this person? How are they going to interpret or receive the information that I'm delivering? Because that is really what it's all about. Um, not to get off topic, but that's why we talk about email communication and text communication as being so, is sometimes so ineffective in a negotiations because we don't have the ability to convey that information through our own voice. The person who's receiving that text or that email is the one who is reading it and, re and receiving it and interpreting how we meant that message in their voice. It's their attitude. It is where they are in that day. It is their level of anxiety, their level of frustration that's going to determine how they read the information that you're sending them. So we have the ability in a face-to-face -face communication or, or over the phone or, or in, a, in an environment like this to actually understand how that person learns, understand what how they receive information, and then cater what we're saying to best to be the most impactful, the most influential, the most persuasive that we can. And one of them is sizing up that person in terms of their negotiation strategy, right? Are they compliant? Are they competitive? Are they collaborative? So do I want to know whether they see this as something where I'm the other and they're and we're going to we're going to find ourselves butting heads or whether they are somebody who's looking for a way to get a creative deal done, whether it's my client or the other side. But then there are other ways to do this, like using analogies and metaphor. Um, you know, you talked about like, on a technical level, what do they know and what what don't they know? And sometimes using metaphor by understanding what that knowledge gap is and using something else that is of common knowledge, whether it's travel or sports or food or whatever it is, um, to bridge that gap and and help them understand the thing that that technical thing that you're trying to explain to them in a way that they can receive it. There's nothing, um, there's nothing that is, uh, that is meant to, um, uh, to insult that other person by doing that. You're trying to communicate effectively with, with them. And then the last part is, and I teach a whole class on the decision, what I call the decision makers. Who are they as a person? You know, we talk about the disc profile, but you know, I break it into the assertive drivers, 
the collaborative feelers, the expressive humanists, and the analytic thinkers. What kind of a person is this? Do they need data? Is that the best way that they are going to receive information? Do they need stories? Do they need an hour or do they need 10 minutes? The, the length of time that you deliver your information is just as important as the information that you're delivering. So all of those things are incredibly important. And when you can master that and you can go in and over time, especially if you've got other people in that room with you and you can be observing. Um, and this is where, you know, people who work in teams have this ability when they go in with three of them and they each have their part of the presentation that they're doing the other Time, the times that they're not doing the presentation should be spent sitting back and just observing the other side to do exactly what you're doing. Gather all of this intel, gather all this information verbally and non-verbally so that when it's your turn, you, you know exactly what to say and how to say it. Mm -hmm. You know, when I became a sales manager, I did sales management and sales director for 13 years. I, I did not sell prior to then. Like I was not a salesperson that was elevated to that role. I was a subject matter managed subject matter expert that was brought into Got that it. role. And I'm you know, pretty easy to deal with. And I had teams of people that I had to learn how to work with. I remember going on my very first sales call. This is God, 2010, uh, with a, a experienced media salesperson. I was nervous. I'm like, I'm gonna say the wrong thing, and she's gonna get pissed off at me. And that certainly did not happen, right? It was very much like, well, I, I quickly learned that, you know, all I had to do was really see the style that all of the account executives um, used and the style of the people to whom we were talking. And then it was a matter of adapting the conversation to however people wanted to receive information. Um, and I hope that's a transition into a question I want to ask about generations and how mm -hmm. To communicate with people across generations because in in the real estate world you know a lot of people that are buying their first home right now are probably in their 30s right late yeah. 20s 30s early 40s um sales can be in their early 20s they could be in their 60s right so we have a, a wide range of people generationally we have you know gen z millennials gen x and baby boomers all kind of in this world right now and mm -hmm. they all don't communicate the same way um, you know, you mentioned something about email and text and how tone is, it's really difficult to convey that. I yeah. can't tell you how many emails Rory has read to me where he read the tone in one way in his voice. And I'm like, <laughs> right. are you sure they're saying it to you that way? You know, yeah. maybe they're saying it to you a different way. Um, and that's why these, you know, in-person communications that people of my generation, gener generation X really still appreciate. Because we mm -hmm. like being able to be in front of people because then we can inflect our voice, we can emphasize things, we can you know, get some nonverbal cues. Whereas I used to have people on my staff that were um, you know, millennial Gen Z and they wouldn't want to talk to people on the phone. Yeah. They 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 froze up. Like you they hated it when I called a, a meeting, like a one-on-one. -on -one. It was like they were petrified. I think that they wanted to have all their communication uh through text or through email mm -hmm. or through chat because that's what they're just kind of really good at. So right. comment a little bit about, you know, the cross-generational communication styles and how that factors into, you know, any kind of business negotiation and, and, and business dealings. It goes right back to what we were just talking about. And it's, there are, in our, in one of the courses that I teach, we have a whole section on multi-generational factors talking about what, um milestones or what important events happen in a gener in the life of a generation the early early years of a generation that impact the way that they behave 
um, whether it's a war or famine or COVID, you know, it, it impacts the way that we communicate. It impacts the decisions that we make, how we feel about other people, how empathetic or non-empathetic we are, all of those things. And so it's, it, it absolutely plays a huge role. Um, to not go into it in too great of detail, I'll say this. Um, it's just the conversation we were having about meeting the other person where they are and understanding who they are, not, not stereotyping them or assuming that because they're a Gen X or because they're a baby boomer, because they're of a specific generation, that they are less technically savvy, that they don't understand certain things, that they're in cognitive decline, whatever these, these assumptions that we make about people just because the of the age that they are um, is unfair and it's going to get you into trouble if you're making those assumptions but certainly communicating with that person in a manner that fits their style now you can alter that let's say by someone who is a, a gen z or someone who likes to communicate via text via chat via email, who doesn't necessarily like the, or feels that it is that it is uh, nerve wracking, anxiety producing, all of those things to actually speak with someone in person or on the phone. Now, you may not understand it, I may not understand it, but if I wanna communicate with that person effectively, I need to at least acknowledge it and understand that that's a real thing for them. So then how can we compromise? How can we have a collaborative negotiation that deals with self-interest, right? And because that's what it's about. Help me understand what it is about text communication, email communication and chat that you like so much that you think it becomes a more effective way to communicate than an in-person meeting or on the phone. Let's have that conversation. I don't have to uh, capitulate. I don't have to, I don't have to, um, a comply with everything that they're asking me to do just because I want to have the conversation. I want to gather intel, gather information so that then we can come up with a solution that meets both of our needs. Maybe some of our communications can be via chat, but if we're having this kind of a communica communication, it has to be via phone, it has to be in person. And hey, I'm going to do you, I'm going to help you out as best I can by communicating to you via chat, via email, via text, exactly what I want to talk to you about. So that way you can come into the meeting feeling prepared, feeling like you're not being blindsided and feel like feeling as though you know what you're walking into. Because that may be the issue that that person has. And maybe over time you get to that trusting relationship where now they walk into your office and they don't think twice about it, right? So. Um, those are, uh, you know, there are so many ways that we can, that we can, uh, look at how these gen multi-generational factors, um, uh, work. I, there's one example that I wanted to bring up that I've recently seen a lot. You've probably even talked about this on your podcast, and that is this idea of the, the, where rates were in the 80s, where rates were in the 90s. This is, to me is a perfect example of a generational gap and how people talk past each other. Because I hear it frequently on, pro, on podcasts and other programs and, and from trainers that I know. And they're like, well, you don't understand. When I first bought my first house, rates are at 21%. Or you know, when I first got my apartment 8%, I felt lucky to get an 8% rate, right? Which is true, which is absolutely, I acknowledge that and it's true and it's relevant. But for someone who is 26 years old, 
who wishes they bought an apartment when they were 24 when rates were at 3%, and now rates are, you know, let's say they're seven and a half or seven percent. The fact that you bought your first house at eight percent or paid 21% in the 80s, that doesn't speak to them. There's no they don't have any context in order to understand what that means. And so you end up trying to make an argument that that's that's in, that's encouraging them or influencing them um, to date the rate, so to speak, and and take the opportunity to buy despite the high interest rates. But what you're really doing is talking about days gone by, and they're like, they, it just goes right over their head. They don't they don't care. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe it's because a mortgage broker or a salesperson is is trying to make it seem more appealing. Hey, it yeah. used to be terrible. This is much better than it used to be. Yeah. You were not even a, you know, an infant. You were <laughs> exactly. a psycho. If that, you were exactly. a thought in your parents' head. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so talking about how things have changed over the past couple of years. I mean, since we last spoke, you know, we've been in a period of relatively high, relatively high rates, you know, for the past yep. decade, you know, over the course of time, you know, things are maybe normally where they are right now, but what is different now in what you're seeing with people that are coming to you for advice um, versus just a couple of years ago? You know, if the real estate market, you know, where there's an inventory gridlock still, you know, I think that when this podcast comes out in just a couple of weeks, there'll still be an inventory gridlock. Yeah. Rates are where they are. People are probably now realizing, okay, this is the norm for a little while. Now let me figure out what I'm going to do. Whereas a couple of years ago, people were just going to sit and wait. You know, yeah. people have been sitting, sitting and waiting for a couple of years now. What what advice do you have for folks that are coming to you saying, I'm going to jump into the market. How do I negotiate this stuff? Or I'm going to start working with clients again. What do you think I should do differently from a couple of years ago? That's a great question. And I think that we that it's such an important question for agents out there now to really explore what is different, what has changed. And and whether this is a lasting change that they need to be aware of. And there are a couple of things that, that I see where I do believe that there is a, a lasting change that should change the way that agents um, communicate with their clients and the way that they influence their clients and, and have conversations with their clients. And one is obviously rates are, are higher. Um, We've we've run into something that is somewhat unique, although I, I don't want to make it seem like this is this is the first time it's ever happened, but it's somewhat unique in that rates were so incredibly low that everyone who uh, ever at least everyone should have taken advantage of a new uh, mortgage or a refi at some point while rates were low. If they didn't, for one reason or another, they're kind of trapped. But for the majority of mortgage holders they are looking at a 4% or lower interest rate on their current property. So now looking at the spread between where they are currently and if they made a move, what their rate would become, that's a problem that is somewhat unique. I've been in the business for 20 years, almost 20 years. That I've never run into with another market where, where, there, where there was that stagnation primarily because you have sellers who legitimately and understandably are saying, I have a three and a half percent interest rate right now, and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to trade it for seven and a half. Um, I've got to really, really think twice and three times about what my motivation is to sell, right? Um, that's one. The other problem that I think that we're running into, we're seeing it in New York, and I don't think we're alone based on what I'm reading, 
that is this idea that we've always been able to say to buyers, hey, look, here's the rent versus buy calculation. And this is why you're advantaged, significantly advantaged in choosing to purchase when you can and trading up after a certain amount of years and all of that wealth that comes with home ownership. And in many markets, we are teetering on this in this place where I'm not sure that that's true anymore, right? Where rents are at a point where 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 what you where your carrying costs when you purchase are at a point where looking at that rent versus buy calculation is different, especially when you take into consideration these millennials, some of these these uh, the new workforce where they're changing jobs every three to four years. They don't have to work in a specific city. They can work wherever they want. They move much more frequently. So all of those factors, the negotiation factors, like the convenience of being able to move at any time versus having to go through a co-op board process uh, to sell or buy an apartment. That's what we deal with in New York City primarily. All of those factors are making it a little bit different than other markets, shifts in markets that I've seen. So how does that, what does that mean for us as agents? What it means, I believe, is we have to become incredibly um, uh, knowledgeable. We have to really focus on what our consumers want, whether they're a, a, a seller looking to sell or a buyer looking to buy or a renter trying to decide whether they should stay in their rental for another year. We need to be hyper in tune with what their needs are, be able to ask all the right open-ended questions and closed-ended questions to understand them better, and then have the expertise to actually give them advice and consultation. And I think that, you know, many people in our industry have never gone to that level where they are experts at what they do. They are on the level of a financial advisor or an attorney, although we don't practice law, but somebody who has that specific level knowledge, specific knowledge in a certain area to be able to convey to a buyer, seller, renter what they believe are their options and how to lead them through those options to help them find out what to do in the short term and long term. And I think that's key. Well, good thing you're Eric, the expert. <laughs> yeah. That's, your That's right. Handle. I call myself Eric the expert, so that way, you know, I can I can remind myself that uh, that I have the ability to to give advice. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So Archway Partners Coaching. Um, yeah. Are you off and running now, or um, do you have a yep. clients? You're growing clients, like, and you're building up your content. Uh, yeah. I've certainly gone through a number of those uh, self-directed courses, or one, I should say, in, in my short-term rental mastermind. Um, and it's a fascinating amount of content that gets put together. Yeah. You know, so what's talk about that process? Like, what's it like to record all this content? You know, really, oh. you know, write it. It's probably just it really is, a lot. Um, it's a lot, and and it's exciting because I have someone I'm doing it with. And for a while, I was doing it alone. Um, the, the the programs that I that I offer the one I do one on one coaching um, I do group coaching as I said so those are live weekly or uh, every other week sessions that I do with my coaches 
and we talk about whatever whatever it is that they want to address. You know, I I like to focus on being a coach as opposed to being an instructor or a mentor, you know, something like that. I want them to be able to find what it is that they want and lead themselves to a successful path with me being there to help support them and be by their side. That's the way I coach. I'm a pure kind of uh, the, uh, the coach approach is, is really where I, where I am uh, with my coaching. I'm not there to say, oh, you're making three phone calls? Yeah, make 10 phone calls, right? That's not, that's not my coaching style. I really, really want to know where you've been, where you are, where you're going, and how can I help you get there? What, is, what does success look like to you? What does happiness look like to you? Because if I'm just telling you what to do, you'll do it for a week, you'll do it for a month, you'll do it for a year, um, and it may help you. But if it's something that you just do not like to do or that it doesn't fit your values, it doesn't fit who you are, you're at some point, just like a diet or an exercise program, you're going to just reject it and give up on it when it stops working. So how can we get you to a place where you feel that you can accomplish everything that you want to accomplish by living within your values and your goals? So that's that's what I do on the coaching side. The, the asynchronous stuff or the, the, the evergreen uh, self-paced stuff, I work with my younger brother, Travis, as I mentioned. He, he is an expert in learning and development. He develops coursework for uh, his HR department. He works for a large beverage distributor in the United States. And um, so we started working together. We went away for a week and just sat down for 10 hours a day and started developing what kind of coursework we wanted to teach what would be most impactful and then how can we create a structure so that we can use a learning uh development program we're using kajabi as our as our as our um um uh as our software so how can we start developing those courses what do they look like uh, do they have videos what are the what is the um um what are some of the tools that we and exercises that we give to the person within the program so that they can feel like they can go out of it and put it into practice so that's a, a daunting task and we've come up with about 15 different courses that are several different modules um and now we're working with a kajabi expert to help us kind of put all of that stuff into the program who, who are the types of people who are signing up for your co your coaching programs it the thing that's great about it is i would say that a lot of my coaches coaches in the one-on-one -on -one coachee world are experienced agents who are who have a moderate or have had some level of success who are trying to reach to a new level and whatever that new level means whether it's having more time or having more money um you know whatever their goals are um that's the one-on-one -on -one coaches are a lot of them are in that realm some of them call me we'll have one coaching set, session set up a month and they reserve the other coaching session or two coaching sessions to just be calls where they urgently need some advice on a negotiation and and so they're in a real life scenario and they are in a position where they haven't found that zone of possible agreement or one side's about to walk away and they're just trying to find how what can i do what are some of the skills that i can use to make sure that i get this deal done and serve my client well which is really a lot of what i of what i teach in my negotiation classes mm -hmm. so um so that's where i would say a lot of my one-on-one -on -one coaches are the group coaches are th this is a great um 
environment. And it's new for me. The, the group coaching thing is somewhat new for me and Archway Partners. I was doing a lot of one-on-one and a lot of people were asking for something that was a little bit more affordable and something that was not them alone. They like to react and read and, um, and see what other people are doing. Um, and it makes them more comfortable. So the small group coaching, everybody gets a little bit of time in that week session, but it's, you're not, you don't feel like it's just, you know, me and you on a zoom call like this. Um, and then the skills training is, is very much more like, okay, we are going to address this, um, skills, this, this skill in the, in this week's class. And you can take, you can come in, you can drop in, you can drop out um, as much as you want, depending on what skills you're interested in and in attaining. And I'll just keep on bringing a new one to the table um, to see who's interested in that skill. I'll ask people in the in the in the coaching program what are they interested in, in doing next week, and we'll vote on it. So there's a there's a wide range of how we get to that next skill, but it's just a rotation of. Um, working on different things. What's the difference between a co-op and a condo? How do I read a financial statement? What's the best way to put together a tour for my client? Um, you know, what if my client says no? What's price, size, location, and amenities? You know, how do I understand those four variables and how they interact with my client's search? So that's that kind of stuff. It's interesting to hear you talk about all that because of the, you know, the coaching program or the the mastermind that I'm in. I'm actually in two, I guess. Uh, I just owned a second one last year that it, it behaves a little bit differently from the um, STR Secrets Mastermind, which I joined probably, boy, shortly after we recorded uh, okay. our episode. Um, you know what? I I didn't know what to expect. It, it, what you're describing sounds very very similar. And if you're listening to this, wondering if you should get into a coaching program, whether it's something uh, that Eric could offer or somebody else, because there's there's a bunch of them out there, all about different yeah. topics. Um, what I would say, as someone that is you know paying for the experience, is the course itself is kind of. I thought I'd get the course, and I thought I'd meet a couple people, right? Um, the course itself is super valuable. All right, so if if whatever program you decide to join has a really solid course like on Kajabi or one of those, um, you know, learning programs, um, that is valuable asset. Number one. I mean, like I keep going back to that course for things that maybe I missed the first time I watched it because it was an awful lot of content that they put together. Yeah. There's a lot of downloadable documents, a lot of templates that you could use. You know, there's just a lot of value to the actual course and the coaches kind of refer back to the course all the time and they're always adding to the course. All right. So you know, it's really difficult to kind of have watched everything because they keep expanding yeah. it. But beyond that was was the group, you know, was the actual community that you mentioned. You know, it sounds as though you're you're heading in that direction a little bit. You know, I've said this on this podcast before and to other people, like, you know, really the only short-term rental secrets, uh, I'm sorry, the only short-term rental Facebook group that means anything to me is the short-term rental secrets mastermind group because all the other ones in my mind are just people complaining about stuff. All right. Uh -huh. The free the free ones behave like free groups. Right. Sometimes there's some value here and there. And I know a lot of times the people that launch these groups will launch a free group to be able to build up a community and then sell to that community. But then having access to the private group of all the people that actually have spent money on the coaching program, everyone looks around and says, okay, you, you put money into this, you put money into this. We're the serious yeah. ones. We're the people that are actually looking to learn and, and learn from each other. More times than not, if I have a question for something, I will do a keyword search within the community, like literally in the search functionality. So I don't ask the same question it's been asked a bunch of times. And if I can't find the answer, then I'll ask that question. Um, but between that and then meeting people actually in the group, actually having 
real life conversations with them, whether they're online or whether they're in person or at a conference. I'm going to a conference in a couple of weeks. By the time this episode comes out, I'll have been back from that conference. And I'll know a lot of people at that conference because they're all part of this community. There is a really lot of value to the community element of what you're putting together. And I think people like learning from one another. Um, I don't yeah. know what, what feedback you've gotten so far from your initial layer of coaches, but um, it, that's been a huge asset in my mind. Yeah, I've been, I was shot. I was really surprised how successful the small group coaching is. And of course, you know, as, as someone, so I, I went through a coaching program. I am an ICF member in International Coaching Federation. I'm a, I'm a member of the ICF. Like, so I'm, I, I, in that coach world, you can see how small group coaching is becoming more and more popular. So I see it around, but I'm shocked at how popular or how valuable people find it because it, it, there's a different price point at, attached to it. So you don't have to feel that it's, that it's not as much of a financial commitment, but to your point, that financial commitment puts you in a room with people who are solutions focused rather than problem focused. And when you do have a room that, that is people who are just like looking for the free information that they are or looking for a way to just kind of connect to people for free, oftentimes those environments turn into why is this so bad or why am I being wronged or what, what you know, oh, that's that stinks. I agree with you. And there's a lot of like that that jumping on the bandwagon of the complaint rather than the focused on a uh, focus on. So how do we move forward? How do we solve this problem? How do we separate ourselves from the other agents that, you know, but the buyer's agency agreements and, and decoupling of commissions, a perfect example of this, right? How do I separate myself from all of these others, other buyers, buyers agents who are unwilling or unable to develop a clear value proposition to convince or convey to that buyer why they would need their help and why they probably will end up paying for that help? How is it that I can be one of the people that comes out of this with skills that allow me and enable me to have that business rather than complaining because there's a shift in our marketplace and a shift in the way things are being done? And when you pay for something, when you get into it, even if it's not a huge price point, you find yourself in a room with people who are solutions focused. And that's what I've found with my, with my small group is that it's just a bunch of very motivated people who value the time value the each other's opinions and they are able to it, it for, as a coach this is wonderful i'm able to sit back and facilitate and they're learning from themselves and they're learning from each other and that that really is where i want to be as a coach i want the person that i'm coaching or the people that i'm coaching to go to have that aha moment be, not because i said it but because they heard themselves say it because that's when it becomes drills deep and that's when it becomes very impactful. And that's when that person starts to act on those things because they know that they just realized something. That's, that's also the key. As you said, that everyone is kind of in that situation together and they want to learn from each other. Um, I'm guessing you work with a lot of real estate agents and they yeah. work with uh, brokerages of all different types. Mm -hmm. Some brokerages are probably very hands-on with their learning and their community building, but a lot of brokerages are basically just, you know, sign up and go do, go do your thing, maybe show up in the office once yeah. every so often, maybe we'll do an online learning. And there's probably folks that want more from their brokerage beyond that. And the way yeah. they might find the more could be through a program 
like what you offer because all the people that are in that group are looking for that same thing. So, you know, if you're listening to this, looking for that type of group, because you're just not getting it from your own brokerage, you might need to look out. It doesn't mean you have to leave the brokerage. It just means you might need to look, look from outside somewhere and you might need to look elsewhere where there's a community of people. That is so well said. And I think I'm, I'm so glad you said that because I, by no means do I think um, sales directors, sales managers, broker owners don't have not only the skill to teach a lot of the things that I teach and the experience and that expertise, I think they absolutely could. The reality is, is that where we're going, I think, with brokerage models is that firms are, are learning from their agents that that that's not where they want them to spend time, even though they need that that training, they need that development, they need that coaching. There's, I see less and less of it, even with firms that I respect at a high, high level, there's less and less opportunity to get this information within your brokerage. And to your point, it does not mean you have to leave that brokerage. And it doesn't mean that brokerage is bad. It doesn't mean that you should hop from one brokerage to the next because they're doing this or that training. The reality is, is that this is available to you and you can do it outside of your, of your, um, your brokerage. You can get this knowledge and expertise outside. And a lot of this skills training that I'm doing and that a lot of coaches are doing is stuff that even at the highest, even some of the, the firms that, that train at a very high level, they're not doing this, right? This is, this is very nuanced, very subtle, very soft um, ways to make you a much better agent, uh, a much more empathetic person, a much better listener, a much better communicator. And those brokerages aren't designed to take you through that kind of, uh, of a transition or a transformation. That's not what they're there for. They're there to to train you on certain aspects of real estate, but you you really should keep developing your skill, knowledge, and expertise outside of the available training that you have within your brokerage. So, Eric, usually at this point in the interview, I'll, I'll transition to our final three questions that we ask all our guests, but we already asked those questions of you. So instead, <laughs> I'm actually going to throw in another question I have asked a few times on this podcast mm-hmm. of late as our as our last question. And it involves AI. And mm-hmm. the question is, tell us how you're using AI to help what you do uh, be better. And tell us why AI is not going to make what you do obsolete. Um, I, I believe that it does make me better, and I believe that it will not make me obsolete. So I, I, both of those things I, I agree with, and, and I'm happy to chat about it because I have started using AI. I think everybody who is a real estate professional or tangentially associated with real estate in any business that, that um, um, from here on out, you're going to have to embrace this idea of uh, becoming more efficient through the use of AI. And that is what I think AI has the ability to do for us. Um, I use it when I'm, I'm, I just wrote a new course. Um, I'm teaching it for the first time on Thursday. And it's a, a course that's all about negotiation tactics. So here's how I used AI in a very practical way. So I am sitting down, I'm, I'm rewriting a course that, that 
is has some issues and i was like you know what this course needs a redesign and and i i feel like i have a real opportunity here to take what was just kind of a list of 38 tactics um and some role playing and make it something that is a little bit more um broad or a has a little bit more well-rounded i should say so i went to chat gpt and I said, okay, I'm gonna put in all of the stuff that I know I want in this course. And I'm gonna see what they come up with. And out of that, something that I was not planning to develop as a part of the course was surprisingly, because after I'm now I've developed a course, I'm like, how did I miss this? One of them was psychological factors in competitive negotiation. So why does a competitive negotiator do what they do? From a psychological perspective, what are they trying to gain? What are they fear, fearing of? What is their fear of loss? What are the psychological factors that play into it? Because when we understand that, then we can really understand the tactic. And we talk about name it to tame it. We talk about um, you know the idea of I, I will not be intimidated. All these things that that we react to the psychological impact of the tactic. But if we really drill down and say, why would they use it and get in their shoes? There's so much knowledge to be gained there. So then it became about me developing that portion of the class. Now it's no longer about chat, chat GPT. Now it's about me going, all right, now let's see what chat GPT gave me. And now let's pick out some of this stuff. And now I can really use my skill and expertise to design it in my voice. And then the other one that it came up with was um, ethical considerations in negotiation. So I was I had this section about the negotiator's dilemma, right? Because you know, as collaborative negotiators, we still use competitive tactics um, when necessary, right? And that's the negotiator's dilemma: Am I claiming value or creating value? And how do I understand that and not get caught up in that? And so I have that as a part of the course. But the, but ChatGPT came out with ethical considerations, like. Why should I care about using good cop, bad cop? Why should I care about low ball, high ball, right? And, and so it gave me a jumping off point on how to think about a small section in the class that deals with how should we look at this from an eth ethical point of view, which is brilliant. And that would have never been part of my course had it not been for chat GPT specifically. Now, so that's so from a practical standpoint, I think we all can use it to help us write to come up with ideas. It should not you should not cut and paste and make it that what it just what it is on a page. I think there are a lot of issues that still need to be resolved there. But you can use some of the ideas that you get from using AI um, to to help you out. Um, I know people who are building PowerPoint presentations in 10 minutes. I still have not gotten there, but it's fascinating to me. And I went to a conference with my little brother in Miami Beach just now uh, over a year ago, um, all about the metaverse and AI. And so I'm, I, I think from a learning pl uh, platform, the metaverse idea of being in instead of just doing Zoom, instead of just doing a virtual call, that idea that we could step into a virtual classroom and go down the hall and go into a new classroom and really experience in a different way what it is to have virtual learning. I think there's really some amazing things that can, are going to come out of that as well. It's not going to replace us because I truly believe, and as someone who teaches collaborative negotiation and buyer psychology and all of these things that require a high level of skill and nuance, there, if you are 
if you choose to be skilled in in that way if you choose to be able to hear your client on a high level to listen to your client to use empathy in decision making and for those people out there who are highly competitive negotiators who think that this is just squishy and makes you weak you're absolutely wrong and you will meet a collaborative negotiator one day and i hope it's soon who will run circles around you because they know exactly what you want they know exactly what you're after they know how your ego is playing into the game and they'll run circles around you and that's what happens when a skilled collaborative negotiator is up against a competitive negotiator it is not kumbaya by the fires i probably said on your last podcast because that's my favorite way of thinking about it you know holding hands and swaying back and forth by the fireside that is not what it is it is about understanding from a psychological perspective all of these things that we all deal with when we, we when we interact with each other and so because those things are so far away from ai those things are so um as people use ai more are going to become more and more important right as people gravitate towards something that's less empathetic empathy is going to become more important to separate yourselves from the people who are just doing everything else right that's and that's where i think for at least for many many years we are going to go and why ai ai is not going to ruin us um as an industry yeah, I, I think it's generational. I mean, it's going to be met decades until, yeah. you know, it's going to be ruined. I mean, maybe we'll all be long gone. I, I see yeah. it with vehicles. Yeah, at some I, point, I, the robots I, will take over. <laughs> I, yeah, well, I drive a 2015 vehicle. It's a it's a Jeep Cherokee. I love it, right? I've been a Jeep driver for 30 years. And, like, I drive cars till they're in the ground. Rory actually has a rental this week because his car's in the shop. And it's like, he got some Audi and it has CarPlay in it. It's like, it's got all this fancy stuff. And he's like, talk about how much he loves all these different things. I'm like, yeah, I guess my car has got like 10 year old technology in it, but they make cars that will go 10, 15 years these days. You know, talk about self-driving vehicles. We're still 10, 15, 20 years away from every car on the road being a self-driving vehicle. Right. All the cars coming out today are not self-driving, right? Sure, a lot of them have self-driving assist to them, but like, mm -hmm. if you're still putting cars out today, 2024, that don't have self-driving, those vehicles will be on the road in 2039, 2040, and they're going to have to be on the road with these self-driving vehicles. Same thing with AI, right? We've trained a generation of many generations of people without AI. So now maybe the first crew of kids are coming through high school where AI can assist them and it's going to be part of their every day. Whereas we, yeah. you and I, we all had to learn this, right? But you're talking, you know, 40, 50 years, I think of people where everybody in the workforce is going to have this, like they're breathing. Um, yeah. You're going to have this hybrid model for many, many years and decades to come. And to your point about empathy and, you know, a competitive and a collaborative negotiator, I'm always fascinated how a collaborative negotiator could walk away from a conversation and, and getting a winning negotiation for everybody with a competitive negotiator and not feel good about themselves, but feel like, you know, I'm like, how do you do that? Because that person is that person and you're not that person, but somehow you both came to came to the agreement and, and it's because yeah. the collaborative negotiators realize that they can compartmentalize, they can put things away, they could deal with those really aggressive personalities. And then once yeah. they're done with that, they can move on with their lives and they're not going to internalize yeah. it. They're not going to take that personally. They're not going to go running away crying. Like they're going to get the job done and move on to the next one and then figure out how to collaborate with that person. Yep. Absolutely. Um, 
So listen, thank you so much for the conversation today, Eric. Uh, you know, the the website is archwaypartnersinc.com and that's where people can learn a lot more about you. Uh, yeah. It looks like your, your your handsome twin is on the website with uh, no beard and glasses. And, you know, so so if <laughs> yeah. you're if you're watching this podcast, realize that that is the same person right now. So Eric, yeah, Eric's got a couple different. My more handsome, now. less scruffy twin. Yeah, that's <laughs> oh, right. handsome, uh, handsome on both sides. Like you have like two twins that are both doing the same thing. Um, so yeah, thank you, thank you so much for all the insights again. I really really hope that some people go over to the website and learn more about you and they can certainly reach out to you um, easily and setting up a call around your website. Um, Jason, it's yeah. been a pleasure. I, I really, really enjoy this. You, the, the questions are phenomenal. The insights are phenomenal. I love it. Wow, that's great. Well, I, I I certainly hope that if you're still listening to this podcast, uh, you know, you give us a five star rating, and then you go over to Eric's website and book a call with him and, and learn some more about you know how he he can, he can help you in your business. Um, on behalf of Rory, who's not here today, uh, I'd like to say thank you, thank you for listening, Eric. Thank you so much for being here once again, uh, and thank you. Uh, if you want to be on the podcast, please reach out to us. You can go to realestatelawpodcast.com, uh, watch or listen to all of our episodes. You could reach out to us right there. Uh, and remember, we love five star reviews. So thanks for listening. We'll. See See you next time.